We read the word of God this afternoon in John chapter 3. John 3. We're going to read the first 21 verses of the chapter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We read that far. I call your attention to verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life.
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus spoke these words to a man named Nicodemus, who, as we are told in verse 1, was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus one night in Jerusalem. Jesus taught Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again. But Nicodemus didn't seem to understand what Jesus was talking about, and eventually he simply asked, How can these things be? Jesus replied to Nicodemus by asking him a question. Are you a master in Israel, but you do not know these things? And then he says in verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak what we do know and testify that we have seen. And now here is the problem. Ye receive not our witness, he says to Nicodemus, referring to the leaders of the Jews. And then Jesus says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he is the only one who can tell us heavenly things. Because he says in verse 13, No man has ascended up into heaven. Only one, the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man, which is in heaven. He is able to tell you of heavenly things. Now listen to these heavenly things. And Jesus does just that. Beginning verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you recall that history when Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and whoever looked at that serpent, trusting in the God of their salvation, would be healed from the serpent bites that had poisoned them. He says, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, referring to the cross, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There is a glorious heavenly truth, a heavenly gospel to be preached. And then come the words of our text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus spoke words that reverberate around the world to this day. This is probably the most famous text in the scripture. Almost everybody seems to know it. You see it everywhere you look practically. Sometimes you see it on a bumper sticker or wherever that might be. People seem to know this verse. But what does it mean? Jesus is teaching us heavenly truths, a heavenly gospel of salvation for the world. He says, God so loved the world. Yes, God, Nicodemus. Your God, the God of Israel, the God who for centuries only seemed to love the nation of Israel and no one else. Now I reveal this heavenly truth to you. The God of Israel loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his own dear son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's consider that together under the theme, God's great love for the world. Notice, first of all, the meaning of this great love. Secondly, the act or the revelation of his great love. And finally, 
the gift of his great love. Jesus teaches Nicodemus and us in the text an extraordinary truth, one that to us perhaps is not that extraordinary anymore because we're so familiar with it. But it is an astounding and beautiful truth, very simply put, that God loved the whole world. When we speak of the love of God, we sometimes think of the fact that God is love. John teaches that elsewhere. God is love, which means that even within his own being as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he dwells in the bonds of love. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dwell together in love. God is love. God loves. He's a loving God, even before the foundation of the world. But now Jesus teaches Nicodemus here that God, who loves within himself, also loved the world that he planned to create outside of himself, the world that he planned to bring into existence in the beginning of history. And the love of God for the world is so great, it's beyond our wildest imaginations, as Jesus lays it out in the text. Notice three aspects of God's love. In the first place, the fact that God loved the world means that he regarded the world that he would create as exceedingly precious, as exceedingly delightful. He regarded the world as something lovely and beautiful, like the apple of his eye, like a precious treasure that he did not want to lose, that he would hold dear to himself. In the second place, the fact that God loved the world means that, therefore, God determined to do good to the world, to do the greatest possible good. God determined to rescue the world from the depths of sin and darkness and death and corruption and from the stranglehold of Satan and to raise the world up to the heights of righteousness and life. He determined to save the world, to bring the world into the greatest possible place that it could be, to give it the gift of everlasting life, to give the world the greatest possible thing that it could have, the gift of everlasting life in a world that is yet to come. And then, in the third place, the love of God for the world means that God yearned from the depths of his divine being to gather the world to himself and to establish a covenant with the world, to enter into a relationship with it of the closest and most intimate kind imaginable, to dwell in sweet communion and fellowship with the world, and to say to it, you are mine and I am yours, and we will dwell together and be together for all eternity, world without end. God's love for the world is his commitment, his resolve to have the world in this relationship, this covenant that will never, ever come to an end. That's what it means that God loved the world. And this is a love that God placed upon the world even before the world existed. In the ages of eternity before time began, God loved the world. We must not fail to see, too, that it is God who loved the world. The almighty 
sovereign, omnipotent God who created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains, this great, glorious God who is everywhere present, he is the one who loved the world. And therefore, his love is sure and steady and strong, stronger and steadier and surer than even the best kinds of love that we have ever experienced in this life. Some of us, most of us, have experienced great love from other human beings. On a human plane, we have people who love us. They care for us. They look after us. They do good to us. Now think of the greatest love you've ever experienced or ever received from someone. That just pales in comparison to the love of God for the world. This is the love of God who is love for the world that he would create. It is a love that can never be frustrated. It can never be thwarted. No one and nothing can come between God and his love for the world. No one and nothing can stop God from carrying out exactly what he intends for the blessedness and the salvation of the world. Absolutely nothing can stop God. It is an unfailing love. Think of 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul describes the meaning of love, charity, and he says there, charity never faileth. Well, if that's true of our human love, how much more so of the love of God? The love of God never fails. It never fails. And what Jesus teaches to Nicodemus now is that God had such love for the world, the cosmos. That's the word in the original language, the cosmos. And the world, in the broadest sense of that term in Scripture, refers to the whole creation of the heavens and the earth with all that they contain. That's the meaning of world in the broadest possible sense. So Jesus is teaching that God loved the whole of his creation. We think of in the beginning when he made the heavens and the earth, and he looked at everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He loved it. He still loves it. He loves the whole of his creation, from the twinkling stars that fill the dark night sky, down to the beautiful coral reefs found under the sea, the mighty, majestic mountains that rise up, and the valleys that plunge down below the tender lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon and the mighty cedars of Lebanon and the schools of fish that swim through the sea and all of the creatures down here below and up above, visible and invisible, God loves the world, the whole creation. And in the narrower sense, the world in Scripture refers to the human race, the race of mankind that has come forth from Adam and Eve, our first parents, whom God created in the beginning as our first father and mother. The whole human race that comes forth from Adam and Eve is, in a sense, the world. And that world has fallen into sin and death. When our first parents chose to eat of the forbidden fruit, they plunged the whole human race into sin and death. And we came as a race of human beings under the curse and the wrath of God. 
we became with all human beings worthy of death and damnation, worthy of everlasting destruction. But God loved the world. What we must understand, however, is that what Jesus is saying is not that God loved every single human being that came forth from Adam and Eve. There are times in Scripture when the world can also refer to the world of men who came from Adam and Eve who continue in unbelief and rebellion and hatred of God until the day that they die. That also is sometimes referred to as the world. There is a world of ungodly and wicked men who never come to faith and repentance. There's a world of ungodly men who are the enemies of God and remain so until the very end. They're made up of people such as Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, and Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, who would not let God's people go, and Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, and the future Antichrist, who is yet to come, and many others. There's a world of reprobate men, men whom God has foreordained from before time to destroy, men whom God does not love, and he never has loved, and he never will love. And that's why we read of such things in Scripture, such as Romans 9, verses 13 through 18, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, and God has determined some men to be vessels of wrath, some to be vessels of mercy, so that God's predestinating decree runs right through the world and divides the one world into two worlds, so that there is a world that God hates and there's a a world that God loves. That's why we read, too, in John 17, verse 9, the very same book that we're looking at right here, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says to the Father, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So here in our text, Jesus teaches Nicodemus God loved the world, and there in that text, Jesus is saying, I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you have given to me out of the world. How could Jesus not pray for the world if God loved that world? If God loved the world, meaning all men head for head, without exception, then we would expect Jesus to pray for all men without exception. But he says very clearly that he does not. In 1 John 2, verse 15, we also read, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, The love of the Father is not in him. There is a world that we ought not to love. And God does not love that world either. God did not love the world of men whom he did not give to Jesus. He loved the world of those whom he gave to Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And that, beloved, is why we deny the theology that is very popular in Christendom and has been for many, many years, even hundreds of years. A theology that even worked its way into Reformed circles in the past few hundred years. A theology that appeals to this text and other texts of Scripture in order to teach that God loves all men, head for head and without exception. 
that when it says God loved the world, we simply have to understand it that way. There's no other way to understand it. God loves every man and every woman, and that means God desires their salvation. He longs for their salvation, and he pleads with them to be saved, and he offers that salvation to them. But one of the problems with that theology, among others, is that it can lead to the blasphemous conclusion that the reason why some men in the end are not saved is that God failed in his love to persuade them. I don't say that everyone who holds to this theology says that, but many do. Many are very bold about it and say that God depends upon you. He depends upon your will. You have to accept his love. You have to choose to receive that love or you'll perish. You have a free will. You have to accept the good offer of God's love. But in the end, then, man becomes more powerful than God. God fails to save some of the people whom he loves. He wants to save them. He tries to save them. He reaches out to them. He pants and longs after them. But in the end, he cannot save them. Or he fails to save them. Because their salvation depends on their own choice. We may not go up to every person that we meet as I heard done just this past week by someone, and say to them, knowing, as this person did, that that man is an atheist. He says he's an atheist. And yet, nevertheless, say to him, God loves you, and God has a plan for you. We may not do that. The scriptures never do that. The apostles never did that. We may address the church, because scripture says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church, and gave himself for it. And so we may address the church as the beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we may say to the church, Christ loves you. And we may say to fellow believers, Christ loves you. But to those who by their profession and walk of life show themselves to be unbelievers, we may not say that. We may say to them, God is love. We may say to them, God loved the world. We may say to them, God loves sinners. Repent and believe and come to Jesus. But we may not say to every person, God loves you. Because we know that he doesn't love every person. Therefore, we have to be careful when we speak. But being a missionary and being a witness to our neighbors does not mean we have to be able to say that. Many people accuse us of hyper-Calvinism and of no interest in missions because we can't or don't say God loves you to every person. But you don't have to be able to say that. What we need, we have in the scriptures. We can say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Believe in him and come to him. Well, what then does Jesus mean? If that's not what he means, then what does he mean when he says God so loved the world? Jesus means to say to Nicodemus that God does not just love you, Nicodemus, and he doesn't just love a handful of people in the Jewish nation, Nicodemus. That was a very popular way of thinking among the Jews in those days. And you might even be willing to dismiss that or to excuse that, because 
for thousands of years, God had only revealed his love toward the Jews. In Deuteronomy 7, we read that God chose the nation of Israel because he loved them. He set his love upon them and chose them and lifted them up out of the nations and separated them from all the other nations, revealing that he didn't love those nations, but he loved the nation of Israel. But now Jesus has to make very clear to Nicodemus it was never true, and it's not true now either, that God only loved the Jews or that he only loved you and your family and those who think like you and look like you and talk like you. That's not true, Nicodemus. It is true that God only loves his elect. It is true that God, before time, has chosen a certain people and he loves them and only them. As we read in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us to the adoption of children. God elected us because he loved us. His love is limited to the world of his elect, but it is not limited to one people or one nation or one tribe or one language group. That's Jesus' whole point here. God so loved the world, the whole world, the whole cosmos, the whole creation, all peoples and nations and kindreds and tongues, from the land of Egypt to the islands of Japan, from the land down under Australia to the great plains of Canada, from the savannas and jungles of Africa to the islands of the sea. The whole world is the object of his love. He loves people everywhere, everywhere under the heavens. And we need to know that. Because like Nicodemus, we too can be tempted to think sometimes that God only loves us, our family, our church family, or people who look like us, or talk like us, or think like us. And we need to be reminded, God loved the world, the whole world, peoples, nations, and tribes throughout the width and breadth of the creation. In one of his parables, Jesus compares the world to a wheat field. And that's instructive here as well, because Jesus says that the field represents the world. That's in Matthew 13. And he describes that this wheat field is a place where Christ is sowing the seeds. And those seeds are the children of the kingdom, the elect people of God. He sows those seeds throughout the whole field. God loves that field. When God looks at the world, he sees his wheat field. Now, it's true that an enemy comes in at night, the devil, and plants tares or weeds and thorns throughout the field. God doesn't love those tares. And he says, in fact, at the end of the world, he will send his angels and they will pull the tares up out of the field and cast them into a furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those who hate God and rebel against him will be destroyed. But God looks at the world and he sees, ah, that's my wheat field. He sees the wheat, which refers to the human race, 
his people who are found in all parts, all nooks and crannies of the human race. That's what he sees. That's my wheat field. I love that wheat field. And I long to save it. I long to raise it up out of the depths of sin and death and to raise it to the heights of righteousness and life, to establish my covenant with that world, mankind, as it lives in connection with all of the creation, the birds and the fish and the beasts and the stars. He sees it all, and he loves it. And this truth about God's love for the world is the basis, then, for worldwide missions If we didn't know this truth, how could we do missions? If we didn't know that God loves people everywhere, how could we go out into all nations and teach and preach the gospel? But knowing this, knowing that God has people that he loves, that he chose, that he longs to save, we go, we preach, we bear witness. And we hope and pray that God will use us to gather his own to himself. The love of God for the world is a love unimaginably great. And God has demonstrated the greatness of his love by the greatest act of all history. God so loved the world. Well, the question is, how much? How great is the love of God? Jesus is about to tell us. By that little word, so, he indicates, I'm going to tell you now how great that love is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son. That is the act that demonstrates the greatness of his love. Some would claim that we limit the love of God when we say that he only loves his elect. But the greatness of God's love is not determined by how many people he loves. It's determined by what he has done for them. It's demonstrated by what he has accomplished, what he was willing to do for their salvation. Jesus himself teaches that in the text. This is the greatness of his love, that he gave his only begotten son. Speaking as a man, we could imagine that God might have created a world of human beings in which there was no fall into sin, in which Adam and Eve didn't fall into sin. They continued to walk in obedience before the face of God, And they had children, so that the human race came into existence, and everyone was perfect and righteous, and there was no need of salvation. And that God wouldn't need to send his only begotten Son for our salvation. But that God would simply reveal his love by walking and talking with this perfect, righteous human race. We could imagine that. But God did not create that world. That's a mere hypothetical idea that might rise up in our minds. There is no such world. This is the world that God ordained. This is the world that God created. This is what he planned. 
that the human race would fall into sin and become damn-worthy and become worthy of destruction and hell and that we would become so desperate in need of salvation that only he could save us. That was what he planned. Because it was in that situation that God saw fittest to reveal the greatness of his love. Do you want to know how great my love is? You plunged yourself into the the depths of despair and hopelessness, and you were on the road to perishing everlastingly. But I gave my only begotten Son for you. That's how great my love is. God determined to reveal his love in a deeper way than he would have if there was no fall into sin. He wanted to reveal it in the most striking way imaginable, the clearest, most glorious way possible, which he knew would be the deep way of sin and salvation. Because the love of God is infinite. It is unbounded and limitless. It is unimaginably great. We're only beginning to describe it in the sermon. And God wanted to give us a glimpse of the greatness of that love. Well, the way for him to do that then was to give what was his greatest and most precious thing. To give up the one, the person, whom he loved more than anything else possible. His son. His son is the one who is most precious to him. It's his only begotten son. He does not have any other sons in that sense. When Jesus calls himself the only begotten son, he is saying that he and he alone is the son of God eternally and naturally. God begets his son eternally within the Trinity. You know, you might remember when your first child was born, if you're a parent. Remember that moment when your firstborn child was born into this world, the emotions you felt, the joy that you felt, to see that little one, to take him or her and cradle them in your arms? What joy, right? God has that joy over his son constantly and eternally, Because his son was not born or begotten just once. It's not that the son was begotten once millions or billions of ages ago. And now he just exists within the Godhead. No, he is being eternally begotten. The father is eternally bringing him forth. It's almost as if the son is being eternally born. From God. And we know that means from God the father. God the Father is begetting his Son constantly in the Trinity. So it's as if he is constantly experiencing the joy of the birth of his firstborn. He loves his Son. Remember those two times in Jesus' ministry where he heard this voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We must not think that it was some easy thing for God to do, to give 
his only begotten Son, the Son of his eternal, infinite love, the one with whom he dwelled in the Trinity before the world even began, in intimate communion and fellowship, joy, blessedness. So you see, that's how God reveals the greatness of his love. He says, I'm going to take the person that I love more than anyone or anything else, and I'm going to give him for you. For your salvation. God so loved the world that he gave. Love gives. God is teaching us, Jesus is teaching us here, that one of the essential ingredients of true love is giving. If we're not giving for the good of others, we're not loving them. We might be showing affection, we might be doing things, but it's selfish. It's when we give for their good, for their benefit, then we're loving them. God's teaching us that here. He loved the world so much that he gave his son. And he didn't just give something of little value. He gave the thing of greatest value. He didn't just send him into the world to perform a few miracles and cast out a few demons and then ascend back up into heaven. He sent him into the world to die. To suffer the worst possible agonies we can imagine. He gave him to the death of the cross. And what is so amazing, too, about this is that God did not give his only begotten son in the kind of way that some wicked men gave their children in the Old Testament as child sacrifices. There were men who took their little baby boys and they sacrificed them on an altar and caused them to pass through the flames as a sacrifice to an idol god named Molech. This has nothing to do with that. And the reason is that those little babies had no option. They had no choice in the matter. But the Son of God, the one whom God gave, also gave himself. He willingly gave himself because he is also God. When it says God gave his Son, It means the very same thing as the Son gave himself. The Son willingly came into this world in his love for the world. We think of what Jesus said in John 15, verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he says, that's what I came to do, to give my life for you. Matthew 20, verse 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is teaching us what we are to understand when we gaze at his cross. We are to see there on the cross not just an innocent man falsely condemned to death so that we pity him We're not even to see there on the cross a man who demonstrates as an example for all of us to follow 
what it means to stand for your convictions with courage, even if it means that you must die for it. That's all there. But that's not the essence of the cross. Jesus teaches us the essence of the cross is God so loved the world that he gave his son, and his son gave himself for the salvation of the world. And that's what we see as we follow the history of Jesus in the Gospels. We see him giving himself over to Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see him not resisting the slaps, the spitting, and the false condemnation of the Sanhedrin. We see him standing before Pontius Pilate, silently suffering, going to the cross, because there he would give himself as a ransom and a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In John 1.29, John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus coming to the Jordan River, said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus on the cross had loaded upon himself the sin of the world. There John describes the sins of the world as if it is one great humongous sin, one tremendous burden of infinite weight that is laid upon the Son of God. And he bears that sin. And he suffers for that sin. And he descends into hell for that sin until he has taken it away. God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for us that we might be saved. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins. He's the sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of the whole world. Again, people, kindreds, nations, tribes, throughout the world. 1 John 4 verse 9, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. The gift that God has for us through the death of his Son is everlasting life. God gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. The canons of Dort, one of our three forms of unity, which we often think of as emphasizing election and reprobation, and it does, begins in the first two articles by pointing out, quote, as all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse, and are deserving of eternal death, God would have done no injustice by leaving them all to perish and delivering them over to condemnation on account of sin. We all deserve to perish. The whole world does. But then in Article 2, the canons goes on, but in this the love of God was manifested, 
that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God chose to be gracious. God chose to manifest his love by sending his Son, so that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is the gift. What is everlasting life? It's not just that we're going to live forever and ever and ever. That's part of it. But everlasting life is the thing that God wants to give to us in his love. In his love, he wants to give us the greatest good. What is the greatest possible thing a human being could have? It's to have communion with God. It's to be gathered up into the arms of God and to be embraced as his friend, as his beloved children. It's to have a covenant of grace established between God and us so that he says to me, you are mine and I am yours. And that's the way it will be for all eternity, world without end. Everlasting life then means that we're going to dwell in that fellowship with God in the world to come, a world where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more suffering. And we will live in that rapturous joy of the covenant relationship for all eternity. Who will? Whosoever believeth in Christ which means that whoever does not believe in him shall perish. And Jesus points that out in this passage. He says in the very next verse, 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And in the last verse of the chapter, Jesus says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Woe unto those who do not put their faith and trust in the Son of God from their hearts and cling to him and him alone for salvation. But whosoever believes in him shall have this gift of everlasting life. That means whoever believes in Christ truly from the heart with a sincere faith, no matter who he is, no matter what nation he lives in, no matter what people he is a part of, no matter what color skin he has, no matter what language he speaks, he will have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ, even though his denomination might teach him to trust in his works, maybe he's in a denomination that teaches him to trust in himself. Nevertheless, if that person in that denomination believes sincerely in his heart, in Jesus Christ, and trusts in him alone for his salvation, he will have everlasting life. That's the simple promise of the gospel. 
God so loved the world. God loves the world. He longs to save this world of his elect people, which are found in many different tribes. We don't know who they all are, but he does. And they will manifest themselves by a true faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, whoever receives from God the gift of faith will receive the gift of eternal life. So believe. The call of the gospel comes to all of us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt receive this gift of eternal life. Amen. Our Father and our God, we give thanks to thee that we have been able to hear of thy love for the world. And we pray, Lord, that thou would enable us by faith to bask in the sunshine of that love, that we would be able to find comfort by faith, knowing that we are the recipients of everlasting life with thee, knowing that we are the objects of thy love, but not just us. Give us also, Father, a burden for the lost, for those scattered throughout the world who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And may we be diligent to the best of our abilities in our own place in the work of missions. And we pray that thou would gather to thyself all thy children until the great and glorious day of his return.